0: Good morning, family. Today we're reading in Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol... Who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. All glory, honor, and praise to our God and Father.
1: So uh, Pastor John Nicholas is in, in California, uh, still trying out to be uh, John MacArthur's replacement. Um so, so keep him in your prayers. Uh, I'll be breaking in this new piece of furniture here. Um, the last one is now is now downstairs. This one's a little bit wider, so we have more room. And and the last one, somebody pointed out that the finish was starting to rub off here on the side. So I'll start start working on that as well with this one. But um, so keep keep John in your prayers. Um, I think he said we say like 10,000... 10, words pages pages that they were having to read something insane like that so um i had complained to him about something recently and he said remember you wanted this and so i held on to that little nugget until the opportune time and so now every time he complains about his uh class load or the amount of work he has to do he follows it immediately back up by saying yes i know i wanted this so david's psalm is uh Pretty tense, <laughs> um, and thank you, thank you, Jeff Mock, for for reading that. It's a it's a very intense psalm, and so last week we studied uh, Psalm five, and we really leaned in a little bit to who is David. Um, we talked about who is David, perhaps even a, a little more than than we did Psalm five, and so we did so because we as people can have a tendency to participate in. And hero worship, right? It's all around the world around us, hero worship. Um, you look at social media influencers, this is just another form of hero worship. Um, it's it's amazing. You know, I I'm I'm pretty TikToky because I think TikToks are really, really deeply funny. Um and so you, you know, I think a lot of those folks are getting paid just to use a product in one of their one of their TikToks. So that's you know. Um, I guess I'm announcing my retirement from work and everything, and I'm just going to do TikToks. Uh, Place is funny, man. Steve Howard and I just send TikToks back and forth to each other all day. Hero worship is something that we really do have to be mindful of. For whatever reason, our, our hearts and our minds are just drawn towards people. We can kind of platform people. We can elevate people. We can do so inside the church. We do it with pastors. Um, we do it with leaders. We can do it with our friends and our friend groups. We can do it with you know TikToks and TV. All of a sudden, we care what people think just because we think they're interesting in some other aspect of life. So because someone's good at golf or basketball or football, I now suddenly care what they think about public health, these kinds of things. And so we have to be very cautious with hero worship because we can accidentally ascribe to people some level of knowledge that they're really undeserving of. And so David, we've said, is similar, really. We can, we can participate in hero worship with David, whereas David was really designed to point towards God. And I think we'll see that even more in the psalm today. We'll be reminded of that. And what we'll see is David returning to God in this psalm. And we'll find an interesting pivot point in the psalm. And that pivot point really is going to be on the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. That's what turns David's mind. And so um, we mentioned the term sovereignty pretty often here. So I want to talk about the the idea of sovereignty just a little bit there's a great picture in the book of Genesis of sovereignty, many great pictures, but I think uh, Genesis chapter 15 verses 12 through 16 are, are a, great, uh, a great picture. So if, if you want to turn there, this is a wonderful story, and I, I, and I would commend you to, to read through the rest of this story um, during the week as well. But in Genesis 15 verses 12 through 16, We read, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation That they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, what God is revealing is a wonderful picture of the sovereignty of God playing out in the lives of people. Um, And and this is not sovereignty where God is is reacting to what's happening. God is causing things to happen. If you continue through, you'll see that this becomes the story of of Joseph, is what he's talking about. Um, He is the favored son. And so when you start to think about all that God caused to bring this promise to bear, he was the favorite, which made his brothers very jealous Step out of the Veggie Tales mindset for a moment and into the scripture telling, scriptural telling of this story. He was not an asparagus; he was a person. Caused his his brothers to become jealous so much so that they beat him and shoved him in a hole. Some of you may have brothers just shy of that kind of a activity. And while he's in the hole, by happenstance, in a, an Egyptian. Slave trader happened by. Then he was sold into this slavery. And later met Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, and then found himself in jail. And by happenstance, met Aceli, who heard his story. And by happenstance, Pharaoh was plagued by dreams. And by happenstance, Joseph came and interpreted them. And this was how God brought together his sovereign promise to Abraham. Look at all that God caused from from even the, the impetus for his brothers to be jealous of him. That they would attack him and that his life would be spared and that an Egyptian slave trader would be happening by while they were in the field with their brother in a hole trying to decide what to do with him. And then that he would I mean, the story's wild. It's a wonderful picture of God's sovereignty to think that he would end up in control over this nation, effectively, and be able to bring about the salvation of his family. Not only is it a wonderful picture of God's sovereignty, it's foreshadowing of all that God was going to do. God is sovereign. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful, he is all-present. And as a consequence of those things, he's sovereign. He has to be sovereign. If you're all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present, sovereignty is a consequence of those things. He has to be sovereign. Everyone must accept the sovereignty of God. Psalm 147 and verse 5 says, Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the earth was even formed, was God. God is sovereign, and so he can do absolutely anything he wills to do. If he couldn't, why would we pray? I always wonder about people who demand that we have a a perfectly free will. If, If that was, why do you pray for people's salvation? You should get out and work even harder. It relies on you. It relies on your winsome character. It relies on your words. It relies on your convincing argument. Why would you pray for anyone? God would not violate their will in that scenario. We believe in a sovereign God who can do absolutely anything he wills. And that last part is important because we know that God's character is... Completely consistent. So he would never do anything that would violate his character. Not because he's constrained by these laws and he has to follow them, because he's a consistent, good, loving God. And so his sovereignty is a consequence of his very nature. It falls directly through his nature. And it's in line with his will, because he could never be out of line with his will. We could. Paul would say that he, why does he desire to follow after God, but he just can't. He's a, he's, he's a victim of his flesh, just like we are, but not so with God. He has a consistent, good, loving nature. And so like sovereignty is a consequence of his nature, all knowing, all powerful, all present, his will is a consequence of his character. This is our God. God. His character, he's faithful, he's loving, he's truthful, he's merciful. And so his will is subjected to, or perfectly in line with, his nature. He's always like this. He's not inconsistent. He's not hot or cold. He doesn't get hungry and then get a little grumpy, like you do. So God's sovereign decisions, then, are a reconciliation of his love his faithful character of grace and as david is weeping on his couch as he's just falling apart as he'll he'll say later like his, it's almost like his bones are failing him maybe you've felt that way before maybe you've ever been this low where it's just you feel like everything is gone everything is in shambles what is going to restore david but the sovereignty of god you know maybe someone would say well how could a loving god allow this about some circumstance that is a shallow view of God that is a very high view of people right that, that's what that is that's a low view of God and a very high view of people it says I don't deserve this what we deserve from God is wrath what we deserve from God is judgment and any moment where we don't have the full wrath of God against us is grace Any life, any breath in us is grace. So funny. You know, we can accidentally stumble into too high a view of ourselves. Now, do we need to beat on ourselves and participate in self flagellation? No. God doesn't call us to that. Remember, He is loving, He is grace filled. And so this turn that we're going to see in David is encouraged by remembering what the character and the nature of God is. David will return to this truth of God's sovereignty. We'll see it very often in David. We'll see it very often in the Psalms, and it should be encouragement to us as well. David is at maybe one of his lowest points, and the sovereignty of God is what pulls him up and restores him. And so we should remember that God's sovereignty is a consequence of his presence and his will is a consequence of his nature. Psalm 6 starts to the choir master. What a song this must have been. How would this be sung? With stringed instruments, it says, according to A style of music that really people just kind of grope at. People would say maybe it's this eight-part style. And we know it's a Psalm of David because of that last bit there. Did you catch it? It says, a Psalm of David. I like that. Helps me out. Not a lot to grapple with there. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This is why we spent a good bit of time last week looking at David's life and the timeline of events in his life and the calamities that fell on him and his family so that we can better understand these psalms that we see from David. We can better understand who we're hearing from, what we're we're hearing about. And there's no deep sleuthing required. We know it's David, so we can move on from that. What we don't know is why is David so deeply troubled? What's going on in David's life? We don't know. We don't know what's happening in this. The psalm forces us then, since we don't know the circumstance, because sometimes the circumstance can be a distraction, right? Like a beeping. (laughs) Like, Like a beeping that just keeps going. It can be a distraction sometimes that we're so caught up in the story, right? We start chasing down what was going on in the world. What were the events? What were, what were the occurrences? But this, we don't get that. We don't get to do that. By God's sovereignty, he has allowed that this would be all about the emotions in the turmoil. We wouldn't have a rabbit trail to chase about different people groups and what was going on and what was the war. This is just all about David's raw emotions. And that can be helpful to us because sometimes that's where we are. Maybe it's detached from reality. If you're you're married, have you ever had a dream about your spouse and it it didn't happen and it wasn't true, but you're just angry at them because of what they did? (laughs) Like, I've been there. It's really strange. This psalm is not going to allow us to be distracted by world events and interesting stories. It's going to force us to look and consider the rawness of David's emotion and how he dealt with it. And that can be helpful. He's deeply troubled in this psalm for some reason. And so because we don't get the details of why, what we do is we lean into the depth of his trouble and the way that he grappled with it. How did he recoil? How did he recover from this? Starts out, oh Lord. He's reduced to this place of maybe begging. This psalm is known as one that's almost like penance, really. You you see it you see the same style in other psalms, Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 52, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. What makes this look like? Why is he brought here? I think we'll see that his perspective, because he has a high view of God, because he has a high view of sovereignty, is that ultimately God allowed him or maybe caused him to be brought here. Just like your children. Sometimes children need correction. Sometimes they need to be snapped out of a moment. So do all people. So do God's children. And so this is what is happening with David. Maybe he's gone too far in one direction and God said enough. And he let David taste some of the consequences of his actions. Sometimes we need that. Right? To, to, to not be allowed to taste the consequences of some of our actions is to become a, a spoiled child. I'm in the middle right now of a of a, of a documentary in Netflix. About a, uh, about a gangster who was the inspiration for Tony Soprano in real life. And it's in Massachusetts, I think, right outside of New York City area. Does that make sense? It's Massachusetts near New York? Yeah. He bought his 17-year-old son a hockey team. It really happened. And the kid was nuts, right? Like he was into hockey and WWE. And so you can imagine where this hockey team went, right? Not being able to taste some of our consequences, constantly just having blessings upon blessings upon blessings bestowed upon us makes us spoiled brats. And spoiled brats are obnoxious. And so God, by his grace, aligned to his character, through his sovereignty here, has allowed David to taste Some of the consequences, perhaps, of his actions. David is recognizing maybe here that God is using nations to judge him. So, yes, he has enemies. Yes, perhaps these enemies are being unkind to him. But maybe David sees that as really God is in this. God is allowing this. When you read the book of Job, certainly, you know, this is my favorite. One of my favorite texts is the book of Job. For lots of reasons, but you very clearly see God's sovereignty in the book of Job. God's sovereignty in a siren driving down the road at eleven eighteen in the morning, which is annoying. Thank you, Harrisburg. In Deuteronomy chapter twenty, verses sixteen through seventeen, we see people groups being used to judge. The nations. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote to them complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. You see the Assyrians in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. You see judgment of nations. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Iliah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and Hebor, the river of Gozan, in the city of the Medes, because they did not obey the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. Verse 12 said all of this happened because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God. This is God's sovereignty. He's judging these people by the nations around them. He's causing and or allowing these events to occur. Just like God caused the hardness, the coldness of Pharaoh's heart. The way that that I like to think of this is like the sun can cause ice, which sounds strange on its surface, right? Because the sun warms things. And I don't know if you understand the science behind this, but ice requires cold. So how can a warming agent cause ice? And that is by the lack of its presence, by the lack of its active radiation. And so you can imagine in the fall, which unfortunately we're moving towards, faithfully every year, winter comes and I become miserable for about nine months. Skin hurts. I have to brush things off of my car within 24 hours so I don't get a ticket. I have to shovel my driveway while my kids comfortably sleep in their beds. I'm just kidding, that doesn't happen. <laughs> The sun being blocked by, say, a tree casting a shadow can cause ice. So in the same sense, God not actively being present in something allows it to go go counter to his active will. So um, God not causing people to act in a good or righteous way allows them to go do the very thing that they want to do anyway, which is anything but consistent with his nature. If unrestrained, people would go insane. Without God's restraining grace, we would just destroy ourselves. And so David is aware of God participating in life. It's not like God spins up the earth, right? Like winding up a clock and then just lets it run. And it kind of does its thing. God is active and God is present. He's everywhere, right? Remember the, the, his nature. All present, all knowing. These are the, the omnis. And so what we're going to see of David in this song is he returning to God through the idea of God's sovereignty. That's what encourages him because when the world feels insane, it's so encouraging to know that God is in control and he's either causing it or he's allowing it for his good and perfect purposes. And his sovereignty is constrained by his nature. His nature is good. He's made promises. The Bible is full of promises from God. Some have been delivered. Some have not yet been delivered. And he will deliver them. Look at the story of Joseph. You need to, be, you need to think through whether or not God can deliver on his promises. Look at Joseph's life. Look at the promise that he made to Abram. God can cause anything to happen in alignment with his will. So there's an interesting pattern then in David's song. We Remember last week we talked about him. He's really, he's the anti-hero. He's not the person you should look up to. <laughs> sorry, I'm dying. I'm not, sorry that I'm dying. I'm apologizing for coughing. I'm coughing because I'm dying. David is this anti-hero. Um, he, he's not, if, if you had to pick someone to glorify you through their great decisions, it's not going to be David. Right? Oh, here's one that's going to make me look good. I mean, this, this is the most amazing thing I think about Scripture, is the people through whom God works. You know, I mean, we're encouraged all over Scripture that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I mean, like you just look at God's people sometime and you're like, this is the team. (laughs) This is how we take over the world. David, very consistent. This is not the person that you're going to pick to bring you glory of himself, except that he's an imperfect vessel through whom God will accomplish his will, which should magnify God, not David. And so when we magnify David, we miss it. It's God who is doing all these amazing things. Look at the fool David. You were able to accomplish all of this in spite of who you are? God's amazing. That's what we should see. And so when we see David being refreshed and encouraged by God's sovereignty, that is what we're supposed to see in David. That is what we're supposed to see in all of these characters through whom God told his story, his living word was shared through these people who were designed to point at him, not at them. And so similarly, on us, if you've known me for more than 10 minutes, you know what I'm going to start talking about is is the way that we as people and Christians magnify God. Not like a magnifying glass designed to make something small big, but like a telescope designed to make something otherworldly and huge be small enough that we can see it and appreciate its details. And so too we magnify and glorify God. David is re-encouraged by the sovereignty of God. We're going to see a pattern in Psalm 6 where David is one, brought low. Two, he is directed by God. Three, he is sustained by God. And four, he finds purpose in life through God. I think we'll we'll probably only get through five verses today. I'm positive we will only get through five verses today because I've got nothing after that. and did study beyond that. But that's enough to help us have a pattern for realizing our way through strife. I don't know when calamity will fall on you, but I do know that it will. I don't know what it will be, but I know it will happen. Life can change in, in an instant. And without the consistency of God, without truly knowing who God is, you will fall apart. If you're following God because of gifts, if God himself is not the treasure, if God himself is not the gift, you will fall away from God. There's a very real enemy in this world who would love nothing more than to take away the thing that keeps you consistently following after God. Husband or wife are not enough. Mom or dad are not enough. People's lives will always fail you. It takes nothing to step out into that street, and be plowed by a car and be gone forever. It takes nothing to step out in that street and be hit by a car and break your back and be wheelchair-bound forever. Disease, cancer, brain tumors happens every single day and we're always so surprised by death I feel like it's one of those things we should see coming much like Christmas every year maybe you're surprised oh I gotta get gifts literally happens every year on the exact same day and it's probably marked on your calendar you should you should see that coming But we're always like, oh, I can't believe he died. I'm like, you can't believe that a person died. You know that statistically almost 100% of people have died. Not a lot of chariots, not a ton of resurrection in this life. Everyone will absolutely die. Then they're going to put them in a box, try to make them look okay, right? Remember a guy one time said they're going to kind of paint him up like a clown. Everybody's going to walk by and look at them in there. If we hold on to the things of this life to sustain our joy, we are vulnerable. This life can never do it. It's almost like the things of this life can be destroyed by bugs, rust, If you're from Pennsylvania, right? If you have a vehicle and it's more than 10 years old, you know what this life brings about. Rust. You can't have more than a 10-year-old car in Pennsylvania. I know that now. I have a truck. I I changed the shocks on the truck. I haven't driven it since. They're rusted. I'm kind of furious about that. This place does not improve things. You don't put your car in a junkyard and wait for it to get better. You put things out there and they get worse. That's what this life delivers. And so David returns to God's sovereignty. He remembers the author of good. He remembers whose will everything is constrained to. He knows the hard truth for the believer, which is that God caused it or God allowed it. And either way, it's being subjected to the perfect will of God. That's comforting because there's nothing you can do through your worry. Laying up in bed at night just makes you tired the next day and the problem is still there. Deal with it according to biblical principles. Trust the Lord with it. Now, I say that as someone who doesn't sleep well, but I still know that it's true. I still know that I can't change the color of one hair on my head. Increasingly, I'd like to. Look at Eric. He used to have red hair. Now I don't even know what it I don't know what color do you call that? It's like off-orange. It's like off-white was a color, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. He's got a zinc in his pocket right now. A little burn. <laughs> uh. David loves knowing the sovereignty of God. So should we. If we were to flip forward, right? Here we are. We're on this side of the cross. I say that we're, we, we've, we've seen Christ prophesy from the very beginning. We know God's plan was always the Messiah. And so now, um, under a, a, a new priest comes a new law. And so we live in a, in a, in a different reality than David did in some ways. Same God, consistent in his character, nature, and will, um, revealed through Christ, life is now different because our sins have been dealt with finally and perfectly on the cross of Christ. And so when we read in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, we see a new encouragement for living as Christians. So we can take what David knew about God, which is wonderful, all over the Old Testament, so everything left of Matthew, we get to see Truths about God's character and his nature that are unchanging. And so we're encouraged in Romans, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord this is our testimony. nothing can separate me from the love of god in christ and he goes through this list where you're reading it and you're nor 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 and you're like hey man i get it nothing and he says no wait nor nor and then he lands on this nor anything else in all creation, which is where I reside. Not even me. I can't separate myself from the love of God in Christ. Can I be backslidden away from Christ? Not functionally, no. Can I need to be patterned in repentance and constantly turning towards my Lord Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I separate myself from the love of God in Christ? No. That's why Jesus could say, none of these that the Father gives me will be taken. They're in my grasp. They're in here. This is Jesus' hand. It's not my hand that holds my salvation. Praise the Lord, I would open it. Psalm 6.1 O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This is similar to an earlier pattern in the Psalms. We, we studied it, Psalm 2, 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Similar pattern in Psalm 38, 1. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. These two statements are similar. They're amplifying each other. This is a grave situation. This is very serious. The second just amplifies the first. So funny when you go to different towns and cities and places people have different ways of saying things whether, you know, there's maps of the United States who says pop, who says soda? I'm from the south, everything's a Coke. Doesn't matter what it is, I'll have a Coke. What kind's, right? <laughs> Pennsylvanians have very strange ways of saying things. I know you're not aware of it. You think it's all normal. It's not. You're weird, okay? Pennsylvanians don't say to be. You don't say it. You don't say that car needs to be washed. You say that car needs washed. That doesn't mean anything outside of Pennsylvania. People say, what do you mean it needs washed? Bring that together for me, bro. Like, work that out. In a similar way, In New Mexico, if you wanted to describe the back of a car, someone might say the backpack. Backpack? What does that mean? The backpack. Is there something back of back? Do I have a backpack? That's what's happening in Psalm 1, though. It's just a way of speaking, right? He's amplifying the situation. He's describing where he's at. He's singing out to God. This is designed for worship. This is setting you up to know where I am. I'm not kidding. This is the back back. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He's describing where he is. Some commentators have even argued that rebuke is not strong enough and condemn would be appropriate. But no matter, we're looking at rebuke, being disciplined and anger and wrath, being paired with this passionate cry, oh Lord, they tell us that we're dealing seriously with God. This is not a light conversation. This is not when you just have, you just wrecked like four sweet bowls of, of uh, Cocoa Krispies and you're, you know, you're walking out of the house happy, feel good. This is deep Moaning, this is deep prayer. Verse two, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? What's happening to him? He's languishing. I am faint, some versions would say. I'm pining away. I'm fading. I'm exhausted. Maybe you've been there just exhausted by trial. And, you know, one of the things that I often hear people say, oh, we don't have real trials. Don't 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 do that to yourself. okay? don't excuse that away, because what it does is it causes you to think that you can't go to the Lord with your problems and your issues. You can and you should, and that's why psalms like this are here. We're not distracted by the situations or the scenarios that were going on in David's life. We assume maybe it was some great war. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was some emotional thing. Maybe it was relational. Maybe it's the very kinds of things that you're dealing with. Who knows? We don't get to be distracted by that. We just see the way David deals with his deep, deep anguish. And I don't know what yours is or what yours will be, but be instructed by David's approach. He brings it honestly. He brings it strong. It's unvarnished. It's his heart before God. His bones are disturbed. I don't know if you know how bones work, but that's the frame that holds your body up. The very frame of who he was was Disturbed. He's running out of words to describe where he is before God. I have nothing, no more fight left. The word is like droop like plants. My family makes fun of me because I am somewhat obsessed with my grass. And I'm going to be honest with you, and this hurts to say, it doesn't look good right now. <clears throat> and they're making fun of me. I don't like that. And I looked out in the yard the other day. My middle son, Taylor, is a, a gardener. And uh, during COVID, um, you know, reefer trucks were going all around. They were picking up dead bodies. He ordered troughs. Like I saw a delivery truck at my, my where I work, my office looks out over the driveway and I hear a beeping up of a truck and I look and it's from Tractor Supply. And they're offloading troughs into my driveway. And I'm like, guys, wrong house. Brandon says, no, no, Taylor ordered those for his gardens. So he's got all this gardening going on and I looked outside the other day at my, my grass because I come out and I look at it in the morning. It's my routine. While you're taking a picture of your coffee cup for your, next to your Bible for Instagram, I'm looking at my grass, and so I'm standing out there, and I look, and he he has these tomato plants, right, and they were starting to get pretty tall, but he's been working, right? He's working for a landscaping company, and so now he's a a working man, so he comes home tired, which makes me laugh, because I'm like, now you get it, buddy. (laughs) Stinks, doesn't it? So he comes home, and he's too tired to do things, like care for his plants, and I look, and his tomato plants are like leaning over for help. They're, just, they're drooping over the side. They look a little pale. They need some water. This is how David is describing himself. It's almost like he's drooped over like that. Have you been there? Or you can almost feel the gravity of your problems and your issues. You can literally feel a weight on your body. You feel like your body just doesn't hang right. Your very frame, your bones are giving out from under you. You're, you're, maybe you're literally weeping. This is how David is feeling. He's languishing. In verse 4, he says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Um, this is where I'm starting to become an LSB fan, um, legacy uh, translation fan. The, the legacy, I, I think, says this a little better. It says return Return, O Lord, and deliver my life. Um, ESV and NIV went with turn. NAS and LSB use return. I think it makes more sense. You'll find it in, in Psalm 80 and verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Psalm 90 and... Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. He asks for God's return and for his salvation. He he wants God's favor. He wants favor from the Lord. He wants it to be like it was when things were good. Now, like I said, we don't know what the situation is in David's life. Is he being judged by nations? Perhaps. What's going on? Don't know, but he is begging God to return to his life. And not on his merit, not on his own merit, not for his own purposes, (coughs) but based on the very character and nature of God himself. And this is where we see him returning to trusting in a sovereign God. And this is why we realize that God's sovereignty is so highly important because the more more that we realize God's sovereignty, the more that we'll genuinely trust him. It becomes a much more genuine trust when you realize that God is all sovereign. And when you realize that his sovereignty is constrained by his will, and that his will is a reflection of his perfect, good, loving nature, and that you're his, you trust him with everything. When you know that there's nothing in all creation that can separate you from his love in Christ, you trust him with everything. Because you're in creation and there's nothing you could do that would separate you from his love. No truth that you bring about the worst parts or corners of your heart separates you. In fact, it actually brings you closer. That light is sterilizing. It removes the power. Secrets have power in them. A buddy of mine used to tell a story called Remember the Duck. And here, the story goes like this, Uh, um, I don't think it's true, I think it's a made-up story. I don't like to use these, but I like this one. So a little boy is playing around the house, doing things that little boys do, which is, you know, stupid stuff, playing with a slingshot, right? And his grandmother has these ducks in her yard. You know where this is going. Boy, slingshot, duck, grandma loves them, you already know the story, okay? Okay playing with the slingshot, shoots one of the ducks. You also already know where this is going. He does not tell the truth about what's just occurred, right? Takes this duck, shoves it under a log somewhere or something like that, turns around, and he sees his sister. You know where this is going. Later that night, they're sitting at the table, finish up dinner. Grandma looks at the little boy. Looks at the little girl and says, it's your turn to do the dishes tonight. Trina, let's name her. (laughs) It's your turn to do the dishes tonight. She looks over at her brother and she goes, you know, I think think James is going to do the dishes tonight. And she says, remember that duck? And he says, you know what? I am going to do her dishes tonight. That's right. That's how this is going to work. This kind of thing continues for a while. And uh, one day, grandpa's gonna take the kids fishing. Trina, (laughs) Trina says, you know, I don't think he's gonna go with us today. She looks at him and he just puts his head down, goes in the house and off they go fishing. He sits with his grandmother, just overcome by guilt. There's a terrible situation. And he finally looks at his grandmother and he says, Grandma, I have to tell you, I shot your duck. She said, you know, I was wondering when you were going to tell me and how long you were going to let her do that to you. <laughs> That's us before God. There's no secrets, guys. Remember the omnis of God? They're real, all-knowing. This is why we know in the Garden of Eden, when God comes in, Used to fellowshipping with Adam, walking in the cool of the garden together with ground that yields, apparently, under his hand, precursed prefall pre-fall. After the fall, he comes to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? He's not looking for Adam. He wants Adam to consider himself. He wants Adam to think about why he makes decisions. He's instructing Adam. And so that's the same God that we're dealing with today. He wants us to think about why we're processing things in the way that we are. And I tell you what, Christian, the more that you allow the light of God to be shine in your life, the more honest you are with yourself about yourself, and the more you try to open yourself up before God, splayed open like David, the better it is. Does it fix your circumstances? I don't know. That's tertiary. We don't do... What Scripture says, we don't follow after Christ so that we'll have a better Friday or so that every day will be a Friday. We don't follow scriptural, biblical principles to have a better business. Now, those things may well occur. But ultimately, we do those things to be obedient to God, to please Him and to serve Him. And so there's a pivot in David's cry. There's a pivot in this psalm In verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. And so it makes me think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question in Westminster Shorter Catechism is, What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the answer comes, man's chief end is to glorify God. And enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. I love that, man. I can live that. My purpose, after I become saved, after I'm found in Christ, is to bring God glory and to enjoy him forever? What freedom. Calvin said on this, We know that we are placed on earth to praise God with one mind and one mouth. And that this is the end of our life, death. It is true, puts an end to such praises. But it does not follow from this that the souls of the faithful, when divested of their bodies, are deprived of the understanding or touched with no affection towards God. So what he's saying is David's not saying that there's going to be no praise and worship of God in heaven. Not true. There's going to be all praise and worship of God in heaven. David is concerned that he wants to be able to do that to bring God glory in this life, through his life. He wants to bring praise and glory of God now. Just like I said that we magnify God as we make him visible to those around us. Just like we were encouraged In the book of Romans, chapter 8, 31 and 39, to live out as excited followers of God. We're not like Quasimodo, dragging one leg and limping on one side, just begging for sanctuary. We're we're victors. We're more than victors. There is nothing in this life that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And our chief end is to glorify God and magnify Him forever. We should be excited every day. Now, I don't mean some manufactured bubbly excitement in spite of circumstances. Maybe there's awful things going on, but that doesn't crush us. We're pressed on every side, but never broken, Scripture says. Because we know that the end game is God. And we know that when we're found in Christ, He loves us. And we know that we can't be separated from that love. And when we know the sovereignty of God, then we know that whatever is befalling us in this moment, we may not enjoy it we may not treasure it, but God is for some reason at least allowing it or causing it. And we should rest in that. And that, we need that. That is iron in our gut. We must understand the sovereignty of God. Unapologetically, we must stand on a sovereign God. That is all that will sustain us in a world that frankly desires to crush us. That wants nothing more than to squelch our joy wants nothing more than for us to be man-pleasers who will change what we say is true to conform with those around us so that we'll be socially more comfortable. We must understand a sovereign God. 1 Corinthians 13.12 says, For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So our job now is to glory in this life. And so we should be encouraged by God's sovereignty, that his sovereignty is a consequence of his presence and his will is a consequence of his nature. And so we celebrate, again, consistent with Romans eight thirty-one through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, or danger, or sword, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you that you gave us a fragile David to see you through. And God, thank thank you that you gracefully gave us insight into his many returns to you through tears, his life lived through strife, and that you carried that forward into Paul, who gracefully, who came to you for grace through tears, who said that he learned the secret to living in much and little, and who encouraged us to live a celebratory life celebratory life subjected to your sovereignty and excitedly so. <coughs> Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You would stand and join us while we worship through salt.